Hello, everyone. I am Neil Pollack, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we cover all things related to books and film and streaming TV, just as we do on the website. We have an excellent show for you this week. Contributor Omar Gayaga will be here to talk to me about The Morning Show, the bonkers drama uh, about morning TV and so much more that airs on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, it's one of Omar's favorite hate watches, and he's going to share his thoughts about it with us. And we're also going to talk to contributor Scott Gold about Loki Season 2, a Marvel Cinematic Universe show now airing on Disney+. Plus. I wrote about it this week, and Scott has watched it as well, and will gripe about it with me. Uh, we have pretty similar opinions about it, so stay tuned for that. But first, it's time to talk about Taylor Swift. It's inevitable that we're going to talk about Taylor Swift, and Stephen Garrett, our frequent contributor and chief film critic, has seen the Taylor Swift Eras Tour movie. He's also seen the Talking Heads reissue Stop Making Sense of it's their 1984 documentary directed by Jonathan Demme, which has been reissued uh, in a 4K restoration, a brilliant restoration. And he has some thoughts about the differences and similarities uh, involving those two uh, concert movies that were made nearly 40 years apart. And he will be right back after these important musical notes not done by Taylor Swift or the Talking Heads to talk to me about. I don't know if you've heard or not, but there's a Taylor Swift concert movie out. It's only the most popular concert movie of all time after just one weekend of release, the Taylor Swift Eras Tour. I think it's still ongoing live, but they also filmed it, and uh, they're charging $20 to go see uh, a Taylor Swift concert movie. No, they're, they're charging nineteen eighty nine because that's the year she was born. Well, all I know is that was too much for me, Stephen Garrett, uh, because... <laughs> I have this Alamo Drafthouse season pass here in Austin, and they wouldn't allow me to use the season pass for the Taylor Swift Ooh, Tour because it was really a, yeah because it was a special event. Wow, I was I mean I was perfectly willing to go uh, see the Taylor Swift concert movie. I, w- I want to know what all the fuss is about. I want to know what the kids are into. I like looking at Taylor Swift. I'm only human. <laughs> you know, I'm you know I'm 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 but a man. Uh, but I didn't see it. However, I did see uh, the reissue, the 4K reissue of The Talking Heads Stop Making Sense at the Alamo Drafthouse. I had a glorious experience. I I went uh, deliberately. I mean, they, they had sold out screenings of this thing all over the country as well. But I went at like 4.45 on, on a Tuesday afternoon. And I was the only person in the theater. The only person. Crazy. And I just sat with my plate of buffalo wings and just bounced around in my seat. The whole time, it was it was a delightful uh, trip down memory lane into uh, "Stop Making Sense," which, I, which to me is probably maybe along with "The Last Waltz," the greatest concert movie of all time. And a true concert movie. There are no interviews. There's no backstage mishegas. There's no like you know. It's just the performance on the stage. Maybe like the Taylor Swift movie. Like the Taylor Swift movie. It's the concert you would have seen if you had gone to see the show. And yeah, they don't even Jonathan Demme who. Uh, who directed a stop making sense doesn't even you don't even see the audience until the last song right and then it's all these groovy white dudes with mustaches kind of dance dancing around <laughs> um, i don't i mean i loved it I, I i i hadn't seen stop making sense for 
almost 40 years. I mean, it came out in 1984. I think I saw it when I was in, in college in, in the late 80s. And, uh, you know, it, it looked and sounded, it just found, sounded fantastic. Oh, it's terrific. Amen. It was really, really fun. So well, you wrote a piece. I thought it was a very interesting piece. And I, I, love, I love your take on this. You, you wrote a comparison between the two because they're they're both very in some ways very emblematic of their eras these these two movies so to speak eras look we're, we're gonna i'm gonna fall in the, I, I will happily tumble into the pitfall of uh being a, a white guy in his mid-50s who watched stopping any sense when it originally came out 40 years ago and it hit at that time in your life when you're a young teenager and discovering music and it's imprinting on you in a way that music will really almost never imprint on you again in your life, you know? And and I'm coming to see the Ares Tour film knowing that I am not their demographic and having a daughter who is at 14 and Ares Tour was her first concert earlier this year, ever going to a concert. Um, and I, I, I don't want to be the guy who says, oh, everything was better when I was younger or this new music these kids listen to is, you know, awful, get off my lawn kind of thing. Um, because I, I do like her songs. And, uh, I, you know, she is, she is pervasive in this culture. And clearly this is a blockbuster tour that has gone beyond just being a musical event, right? It's fair to say a cultural phenomenon, the way that Beyonce's tour is in its own way. And her movie is going to play in theaters, you know, right? Or concert film. Right. So I hear what you're saying. I mean, no, I don't think anyone other than the grumpiest grumpy person, and I'm close to the grumpiest grumpy person, would say that Taylor Swift music is bad or insignificant because it clearly touches a nerve with the generation. I mean, to me, they mostly sound like songs about rich people breaking up, you know? <laughs> they, they don't really resonate with me. I mean, the Talking head songs don't really resonate with me either, but they're, I mean, they're more artful, they're more poetic. The music is more artful True. and more poetic. But, you know, it's like I'm not going to say that Taylor Swift's music is is unimportant because it's it's clearly not unimportant. It's clearly important. But I just felt, I feel like, I don't know, it's just so basic. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, yeah, look, she literally has a song called Champagne Problems, right? I mean, she has a song called uh, The Last Great American Dynasty, which is about some rich kids falling in love, right? So, like, she knows she knows who she is. She knows her audience. I, I, I think she's a phenomenal songwriter. I, I think she truly is an incredibly prolific one. And she's been on the scene for, what, 15 years? I mean, certainly half of her own life. And she's a dynamic performer and an, inc an incredibly magnetic stage presence and all that. I mean, you can't take any of that away from her. Well, I think what's interesting is, you know, just stepping back from a second and saying, okay, if you're an artist who loves writing songs and performing them and you find an audience and that audience grows and you keep recording more and more albums, I mean, however many she's got, nine or 10 or something, uh, and then you want to go on tour, but the demand for tickets is such that you can fill easily many times over a 70,000 seat arena or an 80,000 seat arena, then how, what is your calculus then in performing a sweet love song or a very kind of cool, catchy earworm uh, anthem? Suddenly you are arena rock by definition. And so how do you upscale that kind of music in a way that becomes a spectacle? And, and she does it in a way that doesn't feel inauthentic, but it's the nature of the calculus there. How do you create arena rock in a way that's going to feel intimate? It's almost impossible. It is going to feel over-designed, over-polished, uh, you know, gargantuan. You're going to have jumbotrons. You're going to have a phalanx of dancers. You're going to have pyrotechnics and LED monitors, you know, bedazzling every minute, you know, within a, an inch of its life. And it's also 
a three hour show. So you got to keep, you got to keep that bedazzlement going. So uh, all, all that to say, on the one hand, it felt very mechanized, the show, and clearly polished within an inch of its life. There's no banter that she hasn't already given. There's no ad lib that she's coming up with on the spot that she hasn't already given uh, at least, you know, a few dozen times before this specific concert, which was filmed at the SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles in August. So she had already been on tour for a good six months at that point. And it, and it shows. I mean, everything is so calculated. It's almost mechanical. Um, whereas Stop Making Sense, they had been on tour. They had practiced and practiced and practiced their songs, but they had played their songs in a way and honed the musicality to fine-tune it to its maximum effect in a, in a theater live. Which is to say, if, if you go back and listen to the studio recordings of those same songs in Stop Making Sense, they are not the same. They do sound palpably different. Wouldn't you agree? And here's the thing, too, about that movie, about Stop Making Sense. Because, again, I didn't see the Taylor Swift movie because I, I am too cheap to pay the upcharge. Um, <laughs> and I'm not 12 years old. But, you know, there were- you don't have to be 12, man. They're beautiful songs. I'm not 15 either. So, um, you know, the Stop Making <laughs> Sense, the Stop, that movie, that's a sweaty concert. I mean, David Byrne runs laps. Oh, so sweaty. He runs laps yes. on the stage and not in like a, he's just like running around like a puppy. Um, you know, and the dancing is coordinated, but it also feels like, you know, it's possible that someone could miss a step. It's possible that someone could miss a note. I mean, you see the whole band out there. I'd forgotten, you know, you know they have Bernie Worrell on, on the keys. Yeah. You know, he's from, oh my God. from P-Funk. That is some strong music. Incredible. You know, even that Tom Tom Club. Uh, a song, the one where David Byrne leaves the stage, extremely good, extremely strong, lots of fun, yeah. and you know, and and the the um the show kind of starts slow and acoustic, and then it gradually picks up steam, and you know, it still feels forty years later like you're watching something live. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, you know, what I feel like, sure, I bet they danced a certain way every night, but I also feel like you know, you watch the backup singers as two women. And they just start grooving and moving in a way yeah. that almost like they're trying to delight each other. And then Jerry Harrison will join them. And you're like, I don't know if he did that every night. I think he definitely did it that night, you know, but there's something joyous in their face, like they're discovering something instead of just going through the motions, you know? And, and I think the fact that this is a smaller venue, that they're not as popular a band at that point, that there was still this sense of joy and elation that they found with each other in the music that frankly was not replicated. I mean, they didn't last that much longer after that, you know, I mean, they put out what, three more albums and then they broke up. Something like that. I mean, Talking Heads in 1984, that was, a, that was, there were a top 40 band, they, you know, burning down the house, um, a couple, a couple other songs definitely cracked heavy rotation. Well, yeah. Take, I mean, Speaking in Tongues, which is the album that they're touring on was their kind of breakthrough album, but I feel like Stop Making Sense was the real breakthrough album. That live music, I mean, I just, it, I heard it everywhere. I always heard the live version of Burning Down the House more than like, you know, any other versions. You know what I mean? Didn't you? Yes, yes, absolutely. But I, I just remember seeing like, Life During Wartime. That was one of the first music videos I ever saw. You know, the Talking Head, you know, they made a strong imprint on me, but it's different. It's different than the, than the absolute stranglehold that Taylor Swift has on the hearts and minds of of her fans. True, true. She is the one. She is the own the one and only. So to me, I mean, I, you know, I appreciate your your take on, on on the film because it's obviously like a polished, you know, 
piece of work and fan, you know, and, and theaters are, are full of singing 12 year olds, you know, <laughs> you have to appreciate that. It's a, it's as benign a cult as you can get. Right. It's very benign. It's funny. You know, I went back and looked at like, I don't know, like Madonna truth or dare. I watched uh, a little bit of that um, today just to be reminded at what, what spin she put on arena rock by a singer songwriter who is not necessarily known as a musician and whose spectacles were all dance oriented and, and didn't, didn't foreground the band, you know, who cares who's in Madonna's band. She didn't care. You know what I mean? She did, but it's not like she singled them out. And it's very funny. It's a lot more provocative. It's a lot more raunchy. It's a lot more suggestive. There's a lot of thrusting like Taylor Swift. There's no, there's none of that. It is so squeaky clean. And it is, her demographic is really the human race. You know what I mean? Like there's nobody she's trying to offend. Everything is about kindness and empowerment. And the, the, the only time she's really being mean is when she's talking about some guy who slighted her and it's a breakup song, which is most of her songs, right? She's not being political. She's not being incendiary. She's not Sinead O'Connor. You know what I mean? You're right. I mean, she's just, she's a sweet girl. I mean, she even ribs in one of her songs about, you know, like some, some soon to be ex-boyfriend who like, has some cool indie, what is it, some indie album that's cooler than hers, you know? And I was like, yeah, that's Stop Making Sense is like a much cooler indie album than anything you could put out. For sure. All right, well, to close off, I mean, look, I'm a grumpy old man. You're a slightly less grumpy old man. But there's no grumpier man than, uh, in, in the film business than Paul Schrader, uh, the director and writer who wrote uh, Taxi Driver. And he had this to say about seeing the Taylor Swift movie. About Taylor Swift, however, let there be no doubt. He posted this on his Instagram. She is the light that gives meaning to each of, of our lives. The Godhead who makes existence possible and without whom we would wander forever in bleak, unimaginable darkness. And then he put like a little wink emoji. Like he really wrote that? I know that he, like that's the final word. She, he really truly believes that in this time of darkness and war, and division that Taylor Swift is like an angel from heaven sent to save us all. I I I, I kind of I can't I can't go to that level. I feel like she's she's kind of a corporate music machine. I think it's very interesting. I think the Speaking in Tongues tour was a very seminal moment in in the career of the of, of Talking Heads, and that really captured them. But in a way, it also explains music in a wonderfully conceptual light. You know, the whole idea of bringing out instruments one by one. It was the first time I ever really appreciated what each musician did in a band and how they contributed to that band, you know? And that to me was really eye-opening. It was an education. And, and also I didn't really, I, I didn't know their back catalog very well at all. So it really introduced and celebrated the music in a way that I found was inclusive and drew me in and hypnotic. And it made me a talking head fan. I don't know if I would be that for Taylor Swift after seeing this movie. I mean, Maybe Paul Schrader is that way. I'm not too sure. But I, I, I will say there were, you know, uh, there was very famously in her, in her tour, she will do an acoustic set, quote unquote, where it's like two different songs every night. Otherwise, her set was unchanged. But it was the moment in the movie uh, where I thought, wow, this is really phenomenal performing and songwriting, where she sat at a piano, first at a guitar and then a piano, sang two songs and she really felt like she was being earnest, that she was connecting, she was trying to connect, she was performing. She wasn't just going through the motions. And, and I was like, oh, wow, that's great. That feels genuine. That feels so much more genuine than anything else. Otherwise, as much as I, admi I admired the Eras Tour movie, but it feels more like a merchandising memento of this phenomenal experience that people had. And this is their souvenir. Whereas 
Stop Making Sense feels like this is an ongoing education and this will, you know, like, like Velvet Underground, it will spark <laughs> hopefully filmmakers to want to make concert movies or to use music in movies in a way that it, you know, hasn't been. Anyway, that's, that's my final statement on that. All right, and that is uh, Taylor Swift, The Eras Tour is available for your consumption for $19.89. Uh, Stop Making Sense, the reissue is available for probably less money. It makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense that it would be less expensive. It would be less commercial. It's less commercial music. Stephen Garrett is our decidedly uh, uncommercial film critic, and he has seen both these films, and I thank you for, um, for keeping the beat. Hey, happy to, man. The beat goes on. I'm all over this network. I need to have a say in the future of this place. What you are asking is unprecedented. I am unprecedented. You want that seat at the grown-up table. But it's not your turn, Alex. Don't forget to shut the door on your way out. to smash and shatter. Let's burn it all down. We should finish what we started. There is a kind of a gap in streaming TV these days. HBO is now Max, and Max is no longer the guaranteed home to quality streaming entertainment that HBO once was. It's a real real mishmash of stuff, of sort of house repair stuff and um, more kind of pop garbage than it used to be. I mean, obviously stuff still pops up uh, under the HBO brand that feels like an old HBO show, but there's definitely room in streaming TV for the quality mantle. And that has largely been picked up by Apple TV Plus, which has uh, created shows like For All Mankind and Severance and, and several others that feel like the kinds of experimental, highbrow TV stuff that the old HBO used to do. And then there's The Morning Show, which is arguably Apple Plus's most popular program, which is an incredibly strange uh, political soap opera starring Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston about the goings-on at a TV network. And I don't actually watch the show. Uh, but Omar Gayaga does watch The Morning Show, and he doesn't necessarily watch it in the morning. He wrote about it for us <laughs> for the site, and he's here today to talk to me about The Morning Show. Hello, Omar. Hey, Neil. No, sometimes I watch the morning show late at night. Uh, oh, I yeah. That or not. Yeah, well, that's, that's, you know, obviously, like, people were able to do that. I used to, like, tape David Letterman late at night and then watch it when I came home from school the next day around, like, 3.30 or so. So maybe this is the modern version m version of that. So, you know, the morning show, I mean, I, I found your article quite hilarious. And uh, a lot of the stuff I've read about the show. Is it's really funny. It just seems like it just seems like such a bizarre phenomenon. You know, it's like this. It's not in the newsroom, the uh, infamous HBO Jeff Daniels show that was like a Aaron Sorkin soapbox, and yet it still it does get on its political soapbox sometimes. It does, yeah. It, it's it definitely is a show that has pretensions of being like a prestige TV, you know, saying things about our times type of show. Like you know, the, the first season was very much centered on the Me Too movement. Um, Steve Carell played a disgraced. Uh, morning show broadcaster sort of a matt lauer the whole show is, is is centered around a network called ubn and a show called the morning show which is sort of that version of of good morning america and the two leads are jennifer aniston and reese witherspoon but steve carell was sort of shoehorned in there in the first season as a as a matt lauer type who you know gets gets busted for you know sexual harassment and being kind of a sexual predator in the workplace 
and uh, he is sort of exiled from the show. Yet the show, the first season still had a lot of him in it. He was sort of on the sidelines, like, how do I make my comeback? How, do I sue the network? What do I do? And then, you know, which seemed like, okay, I, I get that as a, as a plot point. But then it kept going in the second season uh, where he goes to Italy and is exiled and he meets Valeria Galino, of all people, <laughs> as, a, as an Italian documentary filmmaker who wants to make a documentary about him. And then, uh, I don't know, we're getting into spoiler territory here, but then he drives off a cliff, literally drives off a cliff. <laughs> and that is the end of Steve Carell on The Morning Show. That's that, how that storyline wrapped up. Uh, the second season was was around COVID. It sort of warped, uh, kind of skipped forward in time to 2020 and dealt with COVID for that whole season. And then this third season uh, takes place a couple of years later. We have fast forwarded past January 6th and Black Lives Matter. And now we're sort of entrenched in the storyline about big tech and media represented by John Hamm as a Elon Musk type tech mogul who want who may or may not buy the network. That's sort of what they're wrangling with. Is he going to, is he going to buy it? Is he, you know, they're, they're sort of circling around with uh, the Billy Crudup uh, network executive character and trying to, trying to land a deal for them to uh, buy the network. That's where we're at. Well, John Hamm is, is much handsomer than Elon Musk. I mean, I, that's, I guess that's He's much everything more than Elon Musk. Right? <laughs> he's more charming. Yeah, he's more well-spoken. His character makes more sense. Like he's, that he's supposed to be like Elon Musk, but everything about him is, is sort of, very different from Elon Musk in that like he's like this guy makes sense. I'm gonna cast Elon Musk. I'm like I'm like, John Hamm is not the first person who comes to mind. All right, so I guess let's talk about this, right? So like it makes sense for a show, a TV show about a morning show like Good Morning America or the Today Show to have a Me Too plot line since that actually was something that was relevant in for morning TV because the Matt Lauer story happened. Yeah, you know, it yeah. legitimately it, it, it makes sense for that. You know. I suppose if you're a new sh- if a show about making news, uh, I suppose a COVID storyline makes sense. I suppose a Black Lives Matter storyline makes sense. The problem is, you know, with a show like this is like, it, there's no way that this show is going to be anything but a mouthpiece for the sort of most liberal editorial writers for the New York Times. And I know that, you know, our politics differ in some ways, but you know, as sort of just as just in terms of drama, making drama. I mean, I didn't always agree with the West Wing, but you know, you can't really argue that like Aaron Sorkin could, you know, crafted you know dramatic narratives. You know, just but in terms of drama, I just feel like this is really more of a recipe for comedy. It seems like it could be like you have some real heavy hitter comedian. I mean, whatever you think of Jennifer Aniston, she is a a comedy pro. Like she is she she is well situated being in a TV comedy. You know, uh, delivering one liners. She's she's a pro at that. She's great at at comedy. So you know, you've got her. You've got um, Billy Crudup, who is giving a great performance as this sort of weird TV executive who sort of has everyone's best interests at heart, but he's also kind of sneaky, and he's also I mean, he is probably the, the best and most complex character on the show at the, at the way Crudup plays him. And he won an Emmy for the first season uh, really was the standout as this sort of, you never quite know where his loyalties are. He's trying to do what's, what's best to, to keep the network surviving, which means he has to do some dirty business in order to keep things moving and, and take care of his uh, stars, you know, the Reese Witherspoon character who he's sort of in love with. Uh, so, so th- there's a lot going on <laughs> and you think, Oh, well that, that's a recipe for a really good dark comedy, like a satire and no, but it, it gets, it's too serious for that. It, it takes itself way too seriously to ever just be a comedy. But then when it tries to go dramatic and be more of a prestige drama, 
it sort of falls on its face. It, it becomes very ham-fisted, ham, so to speak, uh, with the John Ham stuff now. <laughs> it, it, but it, it, it doesn't quite get there as a prestige drama either. So then what's left? It's like, oh, it could be a soap opera. It could be kind of a frothy, funny, absurd. And that's sort of where it starts to lean in season two and season three, is it, it, it's taking itself a little less seriously. It's leaning more into the absurdity of like, let's send... Reese Witherspoon and John Hamm into space in a space capsule. Okay, uh, that that happens in the first episode of the third season. Is 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 uh, this this character that John Hamm plays is also into space like like Musk, and they they send a civilian rocket into space with Reese Witherspoon uh, on it. You know, I, I think the the thing that you described well, it wasn't initially in your review, but it was in an email to me that I thought was so funny that I wanted to include it. it was this thing where Reese Witherspoon was is she's a reporter and she was in the Capitol on January 6th. And maybe, I, I don't I don't really care about giving away spoilers. Maybe Walking you, around looking like a ninja, <laughs> like a baklava. Or like wearing a baklava. Bo- uh, yeah. well, not a baklava. <laughs> not, a, not, a, not a pastry. Balaclava no, or a baklava is, is a Greek pastry. I'm hungry. I thought I was thinking of baklava. But uh, yeah, she's walking around in the Capitol, seeing people getting, you know, beating, getting beaten up. And she sees a guy beating up a cop. And it turns out it's her brother who she's estranged from. And I guess he's a MAGA Republican after all, and, and a drug addict. Did he, did he used to write for Mr. Show? <laughs> did that, guy? that would have been a great plot twist. Uh, but then she has to d- decide, do I turn him into the FBI? Do I delete the footage? You know, like, the, and that, that becomes a big plot point. But just the absurdity of that left turn, you know, I, I was kind of agog at like, oh, wow, you, that's where we're going with this storyline. <laughs> and, and as you put it about the morning show, Although it wants to be in some ways prestige TV, you're under no illusions that it actually is. And yet, you don't even necessarily think it's good. And yet, it is the show you most look forward to watching every week. It's highly watchable. It's very pretty and slick and and looks good. And, you know, and there are some real talents on this show. You know, I uh, I think Greta Lee is giving a fantastic performance as the, the president of the network right under Billy Crudup's character, uh, Corey Ellison. Her character is named Stella Bach, and she's sort of his protege, but also kind of scheming a little on her own and also trying to represent, you know, as an Asian American, trying, trying to kind of represent minority interests on the, sh- you know, in the show, uh, as far as, you know, like pay, ec- they deal with things like pay equity and black talent that, that can't get represented on the show. Like, so she sort of represents, she's fighting for that. Uh, so she, Greta Lee's giving a, a really interesting, great performance. They're giving her much more to do this season, but the show is stacked. I mean, there are a lot of really good actors on this show and I, that we haven't even mentioned how is it that that it's it's 2023 and there's still a, a tv show with holland taylor on it i mean she was the landlady on bosom buddies <laughs> holland taylor martin short pops up on this show juliana margulies from er is 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 reese witherspoon's love interest they make out on this show uh you've got karen Pittman, who's great uh marcia gay harden shows up uh tom Irwin. Cheyenne Jackson, like I'm looking at the James Urbaniak, who I love from from uh, Venture Brothers, Mark Duplass, which we haven't even gotten into. He's a pretty main character, and that's not even like the, the guest stars. Like they, like Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters show up to do a, a song on, on the morning on the morning for no good reason uh, than to just have the Foo Fighters on. You know, like things like that. I mean, it, it's stacked. It sounds like in some ways, like this is why TV even exists. <laughs> it's it's a it's an it, you know i think we're gonna look back on the show and i i, I thought it was gonna get canceled I th- after the first season i tapped out i was like i don't like the show anymore and i i was drawn back in by 
uh, another another podcast called Extra Hot Great that I love that that recommended like no this show is bonkers you should be watching it it's great it's it's super crazy but yeah I mean it, it I thought it was going to get canceled because it looks super expensive it it's not quite working narratively but I think they really figured it out in the second and third season They're like let's just lean into the craziness of this I think we're going to look back on it as oh yeah remember when streaming TV used to spend this much money on a show where they could land a Jennifer Aniston and a Reese Witherspoon and a Steve Carell and you know and we don't see a lot of streaming shows like that anymore like the, the budgets have dried up the morning show perhaps the last big budget bonkers streaming show and Omar Gallaga wrote about it on book and film globe Omar next time we get together I owe you a baklava <laughs> thank you wear it around your face <laughs> so tasty I, I will wear it around my face that's how I eat them it'll get caught in your beard all right I'll talk to you soon thanks Neil what I'm about to tell you is going to be hard to believe. Again. Wow, time slipping. Time, you know that? Yeah. You've seen that. Can you fix that? No. It's impossible to time slip in the TVA. I know, but we just saw it happen. Yeah. The amazing Loki, everyone! He'll be here all week! The Marvel Cinematic Universe is back yet again. It takes a few weeks off and then it reboots. This time it's on TV. We have season two of Loki on Disney Plus, uh, and it was very successful in its first run. And now uh, the storyline is continuing and is more confusing than ever. Uh, we have uh, Scott Gold here today, our resident geek culture expert, or one of them. I mean, I suppose we have many of them in house, but he, Scott, certainly. Uh, Knows a lot about the MCU, and he is here to talk to me about season two of Loki. Hello, Scott. Hey, Neil. Great to be back. Yeah, it's nice to be sharing a timeline with you again. Sometimes we diverge. This is true. It's confusing. It's hard to schedule when you're kind of like this show. Yeah, isn't that ironic? Uh, yeah. So Loki is—it's uh, a show about. I guess you could say it's a show about time travel, but really it is sort of the Marvel used as a vehicle to introduce us to the concept of the multiverse. And, uh, you know, by now we've had a lot of multiverse related uh, Marvel content. So that said, if you haven't watched season one and you haven't seen any other Marvel products, you're going to find this very confusing. Don't you agree? Yeah, I think it's highly confusing even even for someone who has watched all of the Marvel pro products and projects. Yeah, that's kind of how I'm feeling. I'm kind of like, I'm an MCU completist, although to be fair, I didn't finish Secret Invasion. I couldn't. It was so terrible. But other than that, like I, I'm, I'm pretty much an MCU completist, and I, I just find myself really scratching my head at what's going on with Loki. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit about, you know, we talked recently about the show Ahsoka, and I mentioned that the bar to entry for that show is really high, but once you, you know, kind of get beyond that bar, it's a lot of fun. Loki, on the other hand, I think they they forced themselves into a position to have to explain all this multiverse stuff that they set up in the first season, which was a lot of fun, but there was a lot of unresolved stuff that they just kind of left lying around. And I felt, I guess they felt that uh, they had to retcon a lot of things or explain a lot of things. And they're in a tight spot right now. And it just makes for a more confusing show and a confusing experience for the viewers, even if the casting is great and the acting is great and the set design and the props and everything is are fantastic. They're kind of struggling with being mired 
in having to explain a multiversal narrative, which becomes very confusing very fast. Well, the, the narrative, and more than that, just sort of the physics of it all, you know, it's like the world is ending, the universe is ending, the multiverse is ending, and they keep telling us that, but we're not exactly sure how, we're not exactly sure why, and we're not exactly sure why we should care. Um, and, you know, and, and despite that sort of, sort of dramatic vibe that it gives off, most of the show takes place within this sort of bureaucratic confines of the uh, Time Variance Authority, the TVA, not the Tennessee Valley Authority, um, which is sort of this this time control headquarters that we discovered in the first season of Loki. And yeah, it, it's all, it's confusing and it drags a little bit. And even when they do go outside of that, it's not to any place super exciting. It's like 1977 London and then Oklahoma in 1982. And they spend a lot of their time just kind of sitting in a McDonald's. Yeah, you know, I, I felt like this, and granted, we were only two se- uh, two episodes into the season, and you know, we we might get a little bit more of this going ahead. But so far, I feel like if you're telling multiversal narratives, and one of the things that season one got right is that when you skip to a different branch of the multiverse, like a different reality, like have it be like really weird or really interesting. There's so much potential to have it be like really scary or comedic uh, and not just boring. Now, granted, like. I guess if you're talking about the physics of the multiverse, like if you make like one different decision, then, you know, the branch closest to you is going to be relatively the same. But from a narrative perspective, like a lot of the fun comes in when you show up at a new place and things are like crazy different. And that that was the premise for the 1990s TV show Sliders, if you remember that. Not a great show. It had some high points in the first season. But that was the entire premise of the show, that they were going to alternate realities and they had to figure their way around. You know, okay, like 1982 McDonald's, that was cool. Like for those of us who were old enough, like that was a nice little nostalgic trip. But, you know, wouldn't it be funnier? Yeah, there's too much of it. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, wouldn't it be funnier if it was like, okay, it's a 1982 McDonald's, but what if they were selling Mexican food? And, you know, like, or what if they were selling fried chicken? You know, have it be a little bit funnier or different. That's just kind of my take on it. There's a lot of opportunity that they haven't used to, to kind of embrace uh, the possible wackiness of the multiverse. Now, on the other hand, if you get too wacky, you go into like super Rick and Morty territory, which is, uh, I think, what was one of the problems with uh, Quantum Mania, Ant-Man Quantum Mania, was that it was a little too on the wacky side of the multiverse sphere. So I feel like there's a little bit of a, a tightrope here within telling these kind of stories. Yeah, like, like you said, there's got to be a middle ground between like, you know, spending all your time sitting around talking about how delicious McDonald's is and uh, man with a broccoli head, which is what Ant-Man had. So it's like <laughs> right, yeah. somewhere in the middle uh, lies the effectiveness. Now, you know, like you mentioned, it's not like the acting is bad. I mean, you have this sort of buddy-buddy uh, detective relationship between Tom Hiddleston as Loki. No one has ever owned a role as much as Tom Hiddleston owns Loki. And then there's Owen Wilson, who plays his sidekick, Agent Mobius from the Time Variance Authority. And they have a real funny affectionate back and forth friendship. And I think that that works pretty well. The weird thing about this season to me is the inclusion of Kehi Kwan, Oscar winning actor Kehi Kwan as a, a character. He's like a scientist. He's like named Ouroboros or OB. And I feel like, although he, he himself is not bad or annoying, I feel like He's all kind of like Itchy and Scratchy's new pal Poochie. You know, it's like <laughs> all of a sudden it's like, let's see what OB is up to. They literally in episode two were like, let's see what OB is up to. I'm like, and here he comes. Here comes OB again. 
I found him a, a very bright spot in in the series, mostly just because he's just such a bubbly, effervescent, fun, funny presence. Sure. I, also, I don't know if he was cast just because he was in everything, everywhere, all at once, which is another multiversal uh, story, or just the fact that he, you know, people are rediscovering how great he is and what uh, you know how much he can add to a story. Here, I think he's a, a much needed source of levity, but at the same time, underutilized. And I was talking with Book and Film Globe contributor Rob Kuttner about this, and uh, it dawned on me the same thing with uh, you know having Wacky McDonald's is that I would love to get to know Obi's character a little bit more. We we learn in this season that every single member of the TVA was uh, a pruned variant or was a variant that they stole from their lives. So every one of them had a life beyond the TVA at some point because but their memory has been wiped. Well, I want to know what OB was up to because he's this funny guy. Like, wouldn't that be a great opportunity for like a bottle episode to find out what his life was like beyond uh, the TVA? So there's that. But again, it's, it's a little, it's a little too little. He serves as an exposition dump, which is not always fun. That's what I'm saying. And then they're like, let's see what OB is up to. So we can have yeah. laughs. And it's just exactly. kind of, yeah. So the show, you know, the show is, um, I'm not exactly sure what we're supposed to be doing with this. And I, this is the way I'm starting to feel about a lot of the Marvel products. I feel like, you know, literally uh, and figuratively, it's kind of lost the plot. There's so much plot. There's so much exposition. There's so many characters and they're doing so many varied things at once that we're kind of, we're kind of lost in the multiverse, right? Yeah. I mean, I think they're building up to uh, another like giant ensemble movie and correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's, uh, has to do a lot with uh, Kang the Conqueror and the multiversal wars. And um, I can't remember what they're calling it, but it was based on the comics. And I think they're building up to that. And in order to do that, they have to set up all the, the foundation and the building blocks of, you know, what this big movie is. So going into it, we're not like even more lost. I think it's Secret Wars. Secret Wars, yes. And that's fine. This is what comic book movies are. I understand that. I just feel like as individual entertainment, despite some some moments of, you know, fun moments, Loki is so far kind of a muddle. Yeah, it's definitely suffering from season two blues, I feel maybe they might be able to recapture some of the magic that they had in season one. Like when Loki arrives at this dark world that has all this of his own, like really talk about wacky variants. You know, there's an alligator Loki and a kid Loki and, you know, the magnificent Richard E. Grant was there. Like that was a real high point in the show for me. Um, so I don't know if we're going to get there. We're still early in the season. I got my fingers crossed, but at the same time, I, I see myself continuing to watch the season because I've, really enjoy watching these actors and i really i gotta say like i really love all of the retro tech that they have in this like the pneumatic tubes and automats and like a deep sea diving suit and crt monitors like i think the set and prop design is brilliant although one major bone to pick for me is that there is a scene and i am not spoiling anything here for anybody but there is a scene in the show where they sit down and they have a nice slice of pie and uh, mobius wants key lime and it's green and green key lime pie drives me up a wall because you know, it's fake real key lime pie is yellow. Well, Scott, you are a food writer. First and foremost, <laughs> we need true. accuracy. We need, we, I, you're right. You're right. I, I didn't think it looked very delicious at all. That key lime pie. No, not at all. So it's like something you'd get out of the freezer at Kroger's. And maybe that was the point. Maybe that was a conscious decision that they'll loop back on later. But, uh, 
Yeah. To be fair, Mobius, Mobius was sitting there eating McDonald's talking about how amazing it was. Maybe he just doesn't have a good taste in food. Well, granted, McDonald's in 1982 was probably better than it was, than it is now. I, I know I ate there every week in 1982. <laughs> All right. If you're nostalgic for 1980s McDonald's and if you like green key lime pie, I guess you're going to like Loki. Yeah, I like you. I will continue to watch it. Uh, my, my wife loves the character of Loki, so we're not allowed to not finish the season. Whereas Secret Invasion, she's like, no, absolutely not. No way. I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat, Neil. I feel like I'm, I'm going to hang on at this point. Well, in this timeline or in any other timeline, Loki season two is airing on Disney+. Plus. Scott, thank you so much. Uh, I'll, I'll come by and, uh, and prune. Maybe I won't prune you. I'll, I'll prune your bushes, your rose bushes or something. Oh, that sounds good. They need some attention. All right. Thanks, Scott Gold. Always a pleasure to talk to you. We talked this week about Loki Season 2, now airing on Disney+. Plus. Also, thanks to Omar Gayaga for talking to me about The Morning Show, airing on Apple TV+, and to Stephen Garrett, we're seeing both the new Taylor Swift documentary concert film and the old Talking Heads documentary concert film and having the brilliant idea to write a piece comparing and contrasting the two films. We have such great contributors at Book and Film Globe. I'm so grateful to be working along with them every week and every day and to present this podcast to you every week. My name is Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Thanks so much for reading the site. Thanks so much for listening. And I will talk to you soon. Original Production.